For Thursday, June 24th, 2021, this is Did You Wash Your Hands? We're a podcast from WABE, answering the questions everyone's asking during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm health reporter Sam Whitehead. Today, new variants of the coronavirus can make it more likely that fully vaccinated people still get infected. The frequency with which those events occur are likely to be increased when individuals encounter variant viruses. Paul Binash, a virologist at New York's Rockefeller University, joins me to discuss the risks of breakthrough infection and the role that variants play. That's next. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Support for WABE's local coverage on maternal health and mortality comes from Georgia Health Initiative, whose mission is to inspire and promote collective action that advances health equity for all Georgians. Learn more at georgiahealthinitiative.org. It's not uncommon for people vaccinated against a certain virus to still get infected. But the so-called breakthrough infections don't mean a vaccine isn't worth taking, says Paul Binash, a virologist at New York's Rockefeller University. He's with me now to discuss what we know about COVID-19 breakthrough infections and the role that variants play. Paul, thanks for talking with me. Very happy to be with you. We're going to be talking today about breakthrough infections related to COVID-19 vaccines. Define that term for me just kind of in in a broad context. When we're talking about a breakthrough infection, what are we actually talking about and how common are they for any vaccine against any virus? So a breakthrough infection is really a, a virological term that says that if somebody has been vaccinated to the best of our ability, they nevertheless, at some frequency, lower than that which one would see in an unvaccinated population, those individuals can become infected and support some level of replication of the virus against which uh, that person has been vaccinated. And so it occurs to varying extents, depending on which particular virus we're talking about and which particular vaccine. So with influenza, for example, very, very frequently that vaccinated people will become infected. With a virus like measles, for example, very, very much rarer. Obviously, with the coronavirus, we're in the process of gathering those data now, and they're going to be different, I think, for the different types of vaccine. So a breakthrough infection may or may not lead to illness. One hopes 
if one's vaccine works well, that those breakthrough infections would lead to disease at a very much lower frequency than one would see with an unvaccinated population. And so how do these infections relate to a vaccine's efficacy? People may have heard that these coronavirus vaccines in clinical trials and also in real world studies have been shown to provide 90 percent plus protection. So is it those extra 10 percent of people that we can expect to get a breakthrough? How do those pieces kind of fit together? Typically, in a clinical trial, the efficacy of a vaccine is measured in terms of what proportion of illnesses have been prevented. And and that's been absolutely the case with the initial trials with the coronavirus vaccine. So you will have heard on the headlines, for example, that Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, for example, give something between 90 and 95 percent protection. That's protection against an obvious clinical manifestation of infection. That's not necessarily the same as the presence or absence of infection. Uh, It is, in theory, possible to become infected with coronavirus and have no visible symptoms. And those infections weren't followed very closely in the initial clinical trials. But as experience with the vaccines is accumulating and the studies have become more detailed, we're beginning to get a sense of how many of those infections without clinical consequences are occurring in vaccinated populations. And with the mRNA vaccines, for example, it looks like the frequency of infection, that is the virus actually replicating in the person, the efficacy approaches that measured using a clinical output. That is, the vaccines are actually pretty good at preventing infection as well as preventing disease. I think that's a nice transition to some numbers we have from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, specifically about breakthrough infections with COVID-19 vaccines. The agency says as of June 14th, so earlier this month, more than 144 million people in the U.S. had been fully vaccinated. And during that same time, the agency received some 3,700 reports of patients with COVID-19 vaccine breakthrough infection that were you know, bad enough to get hospitalized, and some of those people actually died. As someone who's, who studies this, put those numbers in context. 144 million people fully vaccinated, 3,700 serious breakthrough infections. What should the average person make of those numbers? Obviously, when you hear that last number, it sounds like a, a lot of people. But when you put it into the context of the entire population, then it's actually a very small number. Obviously, in that particular context, it's not a clinical trial, so you don't really know how many infections there would have been if those so many millions of people had not been vaccinated, because obviously a bunch of other factors, human behavior, activity, affects um, how frequently infection occurs. But I think one can be very uh, reassured that that number that a few thousand people that got infected is very much lower than it would have been had that equivalent number of people not been uh, vaccinated. I think it's important to note that what's most important is really prevention of the disease, the clinical outcome. That's much more important than protection against infection. We don't really worry so much about asymptomatic infections. There are one or two reasons why you would 
also like asymptomatic infections to be squashed as well. But the most important thing is that the clinically uh, visible infections are quashed. How large would that number of breakthrough infections need to be for folks like yourself, for public health officials to be really concerned about them as a major issue? I don't think I want to put a number on that. Um, what, What we're really aiming for is as low as reasonably achievable. The fewer infections, the better, because it's not just a case of those numbers being low in terms of the the burden of clinical illness. But each one of those infections is a potential um, transmitter of virus to other people that have not been vaccinated. So we don't really, I think, want to fixate on on a specific number. We just want to get that number as low as possible. I certainly have seen lots of news reports focusing on the presence of breakthrough infections as a sign that these vaccines don't work or that maybe here is something for us to question the efficacy of of these vaccines. What's your reaction to seeing coverage like that, interpretation like that, that breakthrough infections are somehow a sign that these vaccines are not effective? Well, that's just a false interpretation of what's being seen. There is no vaccine that is 100% effective. And so these vaccines are incredibly good. So the notions that these vaccines are not being terribly effective because there are a few thousand out of many, many millions that are being vaccinated, that's just false. It's unreasonable to expect any vaccine to be 100% effective. And it doesn't need to be 100% effective to be an incredibly important public health uh, intervention. I think this conversation is one that kind of fits nicely into the conversation about variants of this virus, uh, a number of which people may have heard of um, previously kind of tied to different parts of the world. The WHO has moved away from that and given these variants names like Alpha, Delta, Beta. How much do variants play a role in breakthrough infections? Can we first talk about the biology of the variants? The variants themselves have a couple of distinct characteristics that are relevant in terms of how well uh, vaccines might work. And so we suspect that some of these variants are a little more uh, what a virologist would call fit and what the lay public might call more transmissible. That is that they can spread through a population at an increased rate. There's another aspect of variants, and that is, do these variants provide the virus with some degree of resistance to the immune responses that we invoke with vaccines? And so both of those properties seem to be in play to different extents with different um, variants. So, for example, the one that was first identified uh, in India, it's the B617.2 or Delta variant, that seems to have a little bit of both of those properties, perhaps being a bit more transmissible and having some degree of resistance to the antibodies that are elicited by vaccines. So each of these properties is expected to marginally erode the efficacy of vaccines. So it's, it's sort of a, a, a somewhat complicated picture where we have immunity accumulating in a population because of vaccination. 
sort of at the same time as the virus is evolving and different variants that have some advantage in an unvaccinated population and perhaps a little bit of an advantage in a vaccinated population, all of those factors together tend to affect not just vaccine efficacy, but what particular variants are rising to dominance in particular locales in the world. Really, if you could explicitly draw the line between variants and breakthrough infections, say someone gets their COVID-19 vaccine and then they get infected by, you know, a different variant or, you know, a variant that might not be widely circulating in, in their area, say, if they've traveled to another part of the world. Is that something that you would consider a breakthrough infection? Well, we're getting um, a little semantic. Uh, here because any infection by SARS-CoV-2 in a fully vaccinated individual, you can in principle call that a breakthrough infection. The frequency with which those events occur are likely to be increased when individuals encounter variant viruses. That is viruses whose genetic makeup doesn't perfectly match the sequence of the vaccine uh, that they have received. And that, that is increasingly the case now because we, we have built these vaccines on the original strain and now the virus has evolved a little bit. It's a little bit different. So I would hesitate to draw that sort of bright line between breakthrough infections and infections by variants. They're, they're all, in a sense, breakthrough infections. They're just expected to occur a little more frequently when viruses that are different to the original uh, sequence are, are in circulation. This is Did You Wash Your Hands? I'm Sam Whitehead, talking with Paul Binash, a virologist at New York's Rockefeller University, about coronavirus variants and breakthrough infections. I understand that you have actually done some case studies on breakthrough infections. Tell me about one of those, what you found, and maybe what some of the implications of that work are. We've done very little work on breakthrough infections, um, but what we did find in a couple of instances, and this has arisen basically because we've been monitoring all our employees here at the Rockefeller University um, every week for infection. It's one of the ways we've been able to, to keep our university open. We've been doing that for close to a year now. And then obviously more recently, the university employees have become vaccinated. And at the same time, we've been monitoring them. So this is an unusually closely monitored and an unusually highly vaccinated population. We were quite sort of in the front line in terms of being able to detect the first of, at that point, a rather small number of breakthrough cases. And so in a couple of individuals that had been fully vaccinated, uh, those people did become infected. They had mild disease courses. Uh, they had apparently normal immune responses. In every way, they were unexceptional and really sort of fit into that 5 or 10% of people that you uh, will inevitably find get breakthrough infections, even though uh, they are vaccinated. Were you able to ascertain how they actually became infected despite being fully vaccinated and, as, as you said, having a, a robust immune response? 
Yes, some of that information isn't for um, public consumption, but there was travel involved in one case and a dinner party uh, in another case that are highly suspicious for um, where these infections were acquired. Uh, obviously, as a university, we're quite keen that infection isn't acquired at the university. That's obviously something that we have most uh, control over, but we don't have obviously control over what university employees do on their own time. These cases really sort of fall into people going about their everyday lives and interactions and perhaps not being as careful as one might be when there are there were still high levels of infection in the community at that point. Subsequently, the number of virus-infected individuals in our local area, New York City, has, has dramatically declined, and with it, uh, the number of cases of infection that we, we are seeing in our staff. So what are the implications then of this kind of situation that we find ourselves in. I'm wondering about boosters. Is the conversation we're having now, this interplay between breakthrough infections and and different variants potentially making that more likely, does that mean we'll need boosters? Does that mean these boosters will need to, say, be different cocktails each season like they are for the flu based on what we think are going to be the commonly circulating uh, variants of, of that virus? So that is a very, very interesting uh, question, not, not just from the public health perspective, but also uh, scientifically. It is, in my view, quite likely that at some point in the future, we will need booster shots. What exactly will be in those booster shots is something um, we don't know at this point. One of the things we have found in our research, which is, is really, really quite interesting, is that people who were infected in the first wave in New York City, who subsequently uh, were vaccinated, these people have incredible immune responses. They have these antibodies that are very potent, very broad, and they can deal effectively with essentially any of the variants that are, are currently in circulation. What that tells us is that the current generation of vaccines, while they're very effective, they have in no way exhausted the capacity of the human immune system to deal uh, with SARS-CoV-2. So what we are thinking about now is that it might be possible to give extra booster shots subsequently just to increase the magnitude of the immune response to SARS-CoV-2, perhaps without even worrying too much about variants, and in so doing, give an immune response that will deal with a wide range of variants and not just the particular variant that happens to be the one that's uh, circulating at present. That's quite important because if you're a vaccine manufacturer, trying to anticipate what you should be making as a booster shot to cover us for the upcoming winter or the following winter, that's a really hard decision to make. You know, the virus isn't going to stop evolving so we can catch up um, with generating our most perfectly matched vaccine to circulating virus. So what I I would uh, say that we're quite optimistic that it's going to be possible to generate even better vaccines than the ones that we have now that will cope with 
hopefully any variant that might come up in the future. Sort of the worst case scenario is that that doesn't work out and then perhaps we might every two or three years may need to get booster shots with with variant uh, vaccines in a conceptually similar way that we do with influenza. But this virus just doesn't have the same um, evolutionary capacity as influenza. And it has very many more points at which we can aim antibodies to neutralize it. What are the implications, do you think, for what people in the field might call non-pharmaceutical interventions? These are public health measures like wearing masks, distancing. These are things that I would imagine are still going to have some value if we can expect even fully vaccinated people to be at some slight risk of infection. That is as much a societal question as it is a scientific question. And it's really unclear, I think, in my mind, what level of disease burden society is going to be comfortable with and how that will play out in terms of people's behavior, um, mask wearing, distancing, and so on. Tens of thousands of deaths uh, happen in the United States each year from influenza. And exactly the same sorts of mitigations that we put in place to protect ourselves against SARS-CoV-2, very effective against the influenza virus. So it's likely that uh, SARS-CoV-2 is not going away, right? It's going to be with us for the foreseeable future. And let's say in addition to those uh, few tens of thousands of influenza deaths that would inevitably occur if we go back to the way we behaved before the pandemic, if in addition to those few tens of thousands of influenza deaths, we had another five or 10,000 deaths from SARS-CoV-2, how is society going to react to that? How are people going to behave in terms of wearing masks That's a difficult question. And, you know, as a virologist, I might not be the best person to attempt to answer that. This experience will, I think, leave scars on our collective psyche. Scars in the sense that it might make us think a little more carefully, not just about SARS-CoV-2, but other respiratory viral infections that have a disease burden associated with them. What's the key unknown at the present time is when we get through the current situation, what is that disease burden going to be associated with SARS-CoV-2 relative to all the other uh, respiratory infections that we have in the past been subjected to? So for someone like yourself, who is just very deeply knowledgeable in, in this particular field, what, what is your level of worry about breakthrough infections, about, about variants, and how should the general public think about the, the risks that both of these things present? I have to say that I am quite confident about the long term. I am a little less confident about the short term. What worries me most of all, is the plateau that we appear to be reaching in terms of the fraction of the the population that has been vaccinated. It's clear that our messaging in terms of how important it is to get vaccinated uh, has only been partially successful. It is just not a 
tolerable situation for 30-40% of the population to be unimmunized if we could get 90% plus people to take the vaccine we could really drive this virus into the ground but what worries me most is really the pushback from some sectors of the population i think perhaps most of all the the absence of full trust in the public health infrastructure ultimately either people are going to be vaccinated or they're going to be infected you will not avoid this choice for, forever okay and the risks of being uh, vaccinated are tiny compared to the risks of being infected i think my greatest concern is that we haven't been as effective as we could have been in driving that message home and you know we just have to keep at it and the better we do with that the less disease and death we'll have from this virus Paul B. Nash is a virologist at New York's Rockefeller University. Did You Wash Your Hands? is a production of 90.1 WABE Atlanta, where ATL meets NPR. WABE's managing editor is Alex Helmick. Scott Wolfel is chief content officer. You can reach us at washyourhands at wabe.org. You can find all our episodes in your favorite podcast app. That's also where you can leave us a rating and a review. That really helps other people find the show. And you can find more stories on the coronavirus pandemic at wabe.org slash coronavirus. If you haven't recently, now might be a good time to go wash your hands. I'm Sam Whitehead. Thanks for listening. mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary, but when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate and thanks.